This is a Federal News Network podcast. In a recent speech, OPM Director Kieran Ahuja pledged to improve the tangle around submitting retirement applications and getting annuities figured out. As year-end approaches and people think about retirement plans, we welcome a new regular guest for benefits, investment, and retirement coverage here on the Federal Drive. He's the owner of AG Financial Services, specializing in federal employees, and a longtime retired federal employee, Abe Grungold. Mr. Grungold, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me on the show today. And we should let readers know that you were 36 years with the SEC, so you know whereof you speak in long-term federal career work. 36 years total with the government. I happen to have worked in four different agencies. Actually, the last one was with the United States Postal Service. Wow. So you did cover the gamut. (laughs) All right. And this idea of submitting papers for retirement, it sounds like a cut-and-dried affair. It's not cut and dried for OPM. It takes them forever to figure out annuities. You probably don't have much control over that. But what's your best advice for making sure that when you do file papers, it's done to the most effective way? Well, Tom, let me tell you, when I filled out my 14-page retirement application, I was planning to retire, and I did this past February, but I started the process September of the previous year. So I spent several months going over that 14-page application with a fine-tooth comb, making sure that every question was answered perfectly. You know, I dotted my I's, I crossed my T's, because I know that my HR department is going to go over it as well with a fine-tooth comb, and they're going to have me correct any potential errors. And any errors in that application will end up costing me hundreds and probably thousands of dollars. So I took a great deal of time making sure that I could prepare it as best as possible. Well, how does a mistake cost you? Is that because they might overestimate your annuity and then later discover you owe the money back? Well, a very simple error is just forgetting to put one of your employer's Uh, one of the agencies that you worked for. So instead of having 36 years of federal service, I could have left one out and it would have calculated only 30 years of service, for an example. So any important piece of information that's left out will affect your annuity. And there are many, many decisions on that application that need to be made regarding life insurance, regarding long-term care, regarding your annuity, regarding beneficiaries. And the most important decision is, even though I've been married 23 years, I think, they want to have a copy of your marriage certificate. So you need to provide that because it's important that the spouse is aware that you're retiring. Sure. At least only the second spouse is aware. Yes. uh, There are many (laughs) federal employees that are divorced and the the former spouse needs to be aware. And there are uh, uh, federal employees that have been married several times. So it's very important that the former spouse is alerted and the court order has to be acknowledged of what 
a federal employee would owe that former spouse in the event they are entitled to something in the retirement process. And getting back to the question of whether you inadvertently leave out a place that you might have worked long ago, maybe only for a year or two, but even a year or two makes a difference in your your annuity, they won't go back and find that. Is that what you're saying, that you've got to give it to them, to OPM? They're not going to double-check and say, hey, Abe, you missed the OPIC year, you know, in 1978. That's correct. And my clients, I make sure that they take credit for every federal job that they had. Part-time job, temporary position, it's important to get credit for every work period that you had in a federal agency because it adds up. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's a 36-year federal employee, now proprietor of AG Financial Services, specializing in federal employees. And is there any way that you can fill out that form in such a way as to maybe grease the skids so it goes through the whole OPM process any faster? Are there things to make sure that you do that will expedite it? Well, it's funny. Even though I spent months preparing it and then the HR department approves it and they go over it as well, really they're just going over to make sure you answered every question and you answered it hopefully in a way that you wanted it answered. But the application really doesn't take effect until you actually terminate from federal employee. Because as a federal employee, you can change your mind on the very last day and say, look, I'm having second doubts. I don't want to retire. You notify HR and say, please pull back my retirement application because they do not submit it to OPM until you have officially gone out the door. Interesting. All right. So uh, what other advice then? I mean, how extensive is that form for people that may not have seen it? You mentioned 14 pages. It, sounds like a lot of questions. <laughs> there are a lot of questions. It's mind-boggling when you first look at it. Not just 14 pages. That's 14 pages to fill out. Then there are other pages of instructions of how to fill the question out. And the application covers beneficiaries. It covers joint survivor annuity options, meaning your spouse can get 25% or 50%, or they could get nothing. There are a lot of questions regarding life insurance, military service, if you've had any military service. If you were injured on the job, they want to know those occurrences. If you've been injured on the job and whether you still collect workers' compensation. So for many employees, some questions are a no or not applicable, but you still need to review them carefully. And you mentioned health care options and so forth that are choices people make throughout their working careers, really. And it is open season. It's about to be open season. Applies to retirees as well as current federal employees. Any special considerations while we're talking with respect to the upcoming open season for health care insurance? In open season, every federal employee should take a look at the other available insurance plans that are offered because my insurance plan is going up $600 next year. And I even took a look to see what are my possible alternatives. 
Now, unfortunately, I have some health issues, so I need to still have certain types of coverage, and I need to make sure my plan provides me and my family with the coverage that we are looking for. But if you're a healthy individual, if you don't need uh, certain types of coverage in your plan, you can look to the other plans. They break them down by category of service, and you can find a plan and save yourself $500 to $1,000 a year. You know, we get into a rut as federal employees that, you know, I'm comfortable with my health plan. I like the coverage that I have. I like everything about it. But there are so many available plans out there. It's important as you as a consumer to evaluate your insurance, whether you have homeowner's insurance or auto insurance or health insurance. You should look to see if you can save some money on the premiums. All right. Make sure you have brand new bulbs on that dining room chandelier and get to work. Abraham Grungold is a 36-year federal employee, now proprietor of AG Financial Services and a new regular here on the Federal Drive. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? 
It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, and I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. 
looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. 
But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com.